Hey everybody, a brief corrigendum before today's episode. You are about to hear me state that today's guest has been on the show twice before, and this is wrong. Dr. Alan Levy has had three phenomenal appearances on this program in the past. Very early on, episode two, Surviving the Oral Boards, then episode 36, The Clinician Scientist, and then finally, more recently, episode 118, EQ, Emotional Intelligence. Now, we throw around the phrase a gentleman and a scholar a lot, but Dr. Levy truly is a gentleman and a scholar, so he was decent enough not to correct me during the interview when I got that number wrong. So, Dr. Levy, uh, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your time again on today's program. And for our listeners, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Alan Levy. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Tonight, I am just honored to again be graced by the presence of someone I consider a, a great mentor and a friend, um, Dr. Alan Levy, who's been on the show twice before, once in the very early days, and then once again more recently, has uh, agreed to lend more of his precious time to me tonight to discuss a very important topic, um, which is finding a job, which is becoming more and more and more important to me every day and every month that goes by. Dr. Levy, welcome back to the show. And John, uh, thanks for having me. Really, uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be involved in something that's really, uh, I think, taken neurosurgery by storm. Yeah, so I will uh, give a shout out and a tip of the hat to Dr. Wang, who can't be with us tonight, uh, for really inspiring what became the genesis of this episode. Um, I've been thinking about what to do with the rest of my life and, and how best to get there. And he gave me a great piece of advice, was, which was just to call people who hire neurosurgeons, tell them what you want to do, and ask, what should I do between now and when I apply for a job to get that job? And so I called you, Dr. Levy, and asked that exact question, which seems kind of obvious, but to people who were deep in the trenches of neurosurgical residency, obvious things are not always that apparent to do. So maybe we can start in broad strokes and work into whatever specific advice is even possible to give in so general a setting as this. But Dr. Levy, when, when you try to put yourself in the position of someone who is one to three years out from applying for a job, what kinds of things should people be thinking about during residency? Yeah, so I mean, I I could. It wasn't that long ago. I I was in those shoes, um, and um, you know, my thought process at that time was, you know, work hard and, and uh, do a good job, and uh, you know, publish, um, present, um, and at the end of the day, everything will just fall into place. And when, when I think about that, that's probably a little oversimplistic. Um, and while all of those things are incredibly important, um, it, it certainly isn't the be all end all of finding a job. And, and again, hopefully in this podcast today, and possibly uh, when you interview other chairs or division chiefs, you'll, you'll get a more of a flavor of some of the other nuances that are important. And uh, I would say uh, 
building your CV is very important, but it's probably at the end of the day, only about 20% of what goes into finding a job. Yeah. And that's uh, you know, we were talking before recording and I, I, I guess glibly phrased it as, you know, if I call and ask for a job, what should my CV look like? And that that's actually a, a really important point. I mean, obviously not the CV, what's written down itself, but even what you've done and what you've made of yourself in seven years of training and everything that's led up to that, you you rightly pointed out, and I'll and I'll I'd like to dive into this that there's so much that goes into me asking someone for a job, for example, that is has nothing to do with me, has nothing to do with my abilities, qualifications, even references, but what year am I applying for the job, right? Correct. So um, we're going to make the assumption that you, you know, you were a phenomenal resident, you, you published a lot, you presented a lot, uh, your attendings really liked you and admired you and you are a subspecialist or moving in that direction. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're looking for a job and you have to understand that there is um, always a need or a lack of need on the other side. So that, that's a big determinant of jobs. It's not just what you bring to the table, but as important is what is the need on the other side. Um, and in different years, um, there, there seems to be a lot of subspecialists in one area looking for a job, and there might not be those jobs available. Um, and, uh, and it differs for spine, neurocology, endovascular, vascular. Um, and, and sometimes it's kind of hard to predict if you're three years away, you know, what the need will be in three years from now. Uh, things can change. People in that department can come and go. And and a bit of what we discussed before is the, the finances behind it. Um, and so uh, every health system works on a fiscal year. And sometimes it's hard to predict three years in advance what the needs and what the fiscal uh, status of that center will be when, when you're ready to come on board. So I, that's a lot we of, of, of points there, and maybe we can dive into each, each one of them. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I think maybe a, a good way to approach this would be, at least in your experience at, at Miami, where you've been at the helm uh, so successfully and for so long, as we've discussed, um, what's the usual timeline in that regard? So, so then that would translate for the job applicant at what point in their training should they start even putting feelers out and trying to investigate where there might be a position when they're a viable employee? Yeah, so I, you know, we're again, we're going to assume that it's a seven-year residency uh, plus a one-year fellowship, and so it's really going to be at the beginning of the chief year or the beginning of your mm -hmm. fellowship where you're really going to be in earnest. Uh, starting that that job process. So we're, we're talking sort of July, uh, August. Um, and then, uh, you, you know, you would be interviewing and sending letters and talking to people at meetings, uh, you know, hopefully come uh, and have a on-site uh, interview, meet the faculty, possibly give a presentation. 
And, and I tell most people that, you know, by November, December, you, you know, you, you should be in the throes of negotiation with one, two or three places, could be academic, could be private. And, and hopefully by, by February, you're going to, you know, be locking down that job. And again, that there's no exactitude uh, to that, that, you know, you could be off by two or three months. But of course, you wouldn't want to be in June, at the end of June, thinking, well, you know, I, I'm going to be needing to start a job in July, and I haven't uh, locked something down that I would tell you that would be very late. Right. And so the other interesting part that, that you brought up was thinking about the needs, or as you said, lack of need on the side of the employer. Um, you know, I, I have friends who have graduated recently who went into a private or community-based job, and we've had people on from different headhunting companies, so to speak, to talk about that workflow and, and having someone go out and try to link you up with positions that fit your needs and your wants. But going into the academic side of things, um, what's a good way for applicants to put feelers out and try to get a sense of where there might be an opening? Yeah, I, you know, so I, I'm going to focus on the academic part. Um, yeah. Uh, rather than the private part, but the, in the, in the academic world, um, it, it, it's based on, you know, what the needs of the health system are, and it could be, um, the health system centrally, and you were talking about subspecialists, or it could be in the health system peripherally, like in, in many spots, there could be a job in the, in the central site that has become available. Uh, due to someone leaving or someone retiring, or sometimes uh, the health system is expanding. Uh, and, and while the central site may be full, um, you know, the peripheral sites may have openings. And that might be an opportunity to, to get your foot in the door into the, into the academic uh, position. Um, and, you know, whether you stay in that peripheral site or start in the peripheral site and move centrally, all those types of options exist. Yeah, so, you know, I obviously, it, it's been a few years since I was down there at Miami, but while I was there for medical school, I got to know that cohort of residents. I got to know some of you and your partners, some better than others. And I got to see the way you run things and you manage things, even from my limited vantage point as a medical student. But what is undeniable is the growth of your department in the past few years. I know you, as you just mentioned, you've started covering other satellite um, hospitals and getting people to fill those jobs. So looking back on the past five, the past 10 years of your hiring pattern in that growth period, obviously this is specific to your health system and your needs. So I won't ask you what subspecialties did you look for, but when you're selecting someone fresh out of training, and maybe later we can talk about trying to recruit an established senior surgeon. But for now, when you're recruiting someone fresh out of training to fill a new need that you have, what sort of people are you looking for? And obviously, well-trained, strongly recommended, but on a more personal level, and you know, hearkening back to our last conversation about EQ and emotional intelligence, what, what does Dr. Alan Levy look for in a fresh hire? No, I mean, you know, well-trained, um, if, if it's a subspecialty person, uh, often a fellowship, but, but not always, but that, that's, um, 
that's common in the hiring pattern uh, unless they've done some, some very significant infolded uh, fellowship work during the residency, um, an appetite for you know work, <laughs> and also getting for me very important is their ability to get along with uh, with their colleagues and residents. I think um, that is probably even number one. Uh, you know, finding someone you feel will be a good um, match with with your your current uh, faculty and and residents. So. That those are sort of general things we're looking for, but as sort of as important is what is the service need. So um, it, it's sometimes um, hard for me to see people who are so well trained have such amazing CVs, and they're just coming out in a cycle where there just isn't a lot of jobs in that area, uh, mm. and so it, it's frustrating you know, to be, to say, oh, you know, amazing CV, but we're just not looking for that type of person right now. And, and, and there are certain subspecialties where there isn't a lot of academic opportunities. Um, and if that's the case, um, then it's so critically important to find those few jobs in academics in those subspecialty areas. And that's where you really have to rely on your, your own person in, in making links and also your mentors reaching out to their colleagues saying, hey, I've got someone who's just unbelievable. And, you know, while we don't have a position here, I would hire them and, you know, you should take a look at them seriously because cold call sending out CVs via emails has, I would say, have, has less of an impact. Yeah, you know, you you perfectly anticipated my next question because I am curious. You know, we uh, recently on the show we did a couple episodes about publishing and academia and research, and it always makes me think about the ratio between published papers and unpublished. And anyone who's a reviewer or an editor for a journal, the vast majority of papers you see don't make it to print. Just like anyone running a busy spine clinic, the vast majority of patients you see probably don't make it to the operating room. And so as a hirer in academic neurosurgery, I'm sure that the vast majority of applicants you review, obviously, mathematically, don't wind up employed at the University of Miami. So I'm curious, when you have that scenario, the person who on paper, even when you meet them, is just the perfect fit, but you don't have the spot, how much can you do to try and make a place for someone? And at what point do you have to just put up your hands, uh, bite the bullet and let them go elsewhere? And, you know, how do you have that conversation with the applicant? Do you, do you try to make them understand that it's the situation and not them? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, and I, if, if it's absolutely clear that it's not a, a good fit, it, it's, it, it's good to send that message out early because, you, you know, you don't want to waste uh, their time and your time. And, and uh, again, you kind of know that in the, in the fiscal year prior to hire, even relatively early on, unless you get a sudden departure of someone. Uh, you, you know, you try to make plans for divisions over, over a several year period and you get a you get a sense of what your growth capacity is 
based on your current uh, OR and clinic schedule allocations. And again, hiring someone that when, when there's no operating time and very little clinic time and they'll be, you know, competing internally heavily, that, that's never a good situation. Right. Well, then perhaps we can turn our attention further down the career pathway and, and think about hiring a mid-career or a very senior surgeon. And, and here, I'm truthfully not as well equipped to ask questions about it. I don't have a, a horse in this race, so to speak. And since I'm not there myself, I, I don't have the subjective experience to even know some of the details to ask. But I'm very curious about it because, you know, as, as we've been discussing, someone fresh out of training who has all the potential and the promise and the recommendation to them in the world, um, they're nothing but uh, what they w will yet become in practice. And, and you can place a bet on that and give them the opportunity. But someone who's been established and wants to make a lateral move to join your institution, I imagine evaluating that person as a hirer is a very different game. No, definitely. And, and so, um, you know, I would say in, in the last decade, probably 90% of the hires have been uh, people who are fresh out of training. Uh, and sort of we've addressed that. Uh, someone who's coming uh, established as an associate professor, a full professor, um, and is looking to, to change um, cities and universities. Um, it, yeah, it's totally different. And it's, they're coming with a totally uh, different portfolio as well. And um, it, 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 there's a lot of nuances there because it, 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 uh, there's, there's a part of it that depends on, again, do you have the spot? Do you have the availability? Do you need that expertise? Um, and are they going to bring uh, not only their skills, but potentially patient flow to the institution? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of examples uh, in our institution, but even nationally, where you have someone who is sort of the, uh, you know, top five in this area, and they're so well known that they move from one institution to another, and they, they bring this huge following with them. And so those are all the considerations. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure that you know with the uh, young new surgeon hire, they're coming to you hat in hand, looking for a place to hang a shingle. You're not going around to PGY sevens around the country recruiting, but I would imagine that with the more senior surgeon, you do more frequently go out and try to court people and recruit them actively. And so I, I wonder. In your experience, or I guess, it, you know, in general, if you can average the times that you've considered recruiting someone or, or done so, do you think to yourself, this individual I want to bring to my department, or does it start out more nebulous thinking, I need someone in this subspecialty at a certain level of gravitas and authority and expertise, and, and then you start to winnow in from there? Yeah, the, I would say the the latter in you know in general, but I, I think everybody's different. But that right. you know that you that you then look at you know the the five or seven people who would be the best fit and try to figure out what you know what what would be the the the, the perfect fit. And uh, and uh, sometimes that's difficult to know for sure. Uh, you know 
uh, before people arrive. Uh, but it is definitely a different process than, than hiring someone new and fresh out of training. Yeah. So I guess as we bring this to a close, I need to respect your time, Dr. Levy. I wonder when your own residents are approaching, I won't say the end of residency, because at, at that point, as you said, you should be looking for a job if you're not going to a fellowship. But when someone in the middle of residency, as I did, comes to you and starts talking about the job process, thinking about it, um, you've already stated that the, the actual time to look for a job and start putting out feelers is later on, maybe a year out, as you said. But for someone who is in the middle of residency, approaching those senior years and has a sense of what they want to do, what would you be focusing on with the years you have left before you have to go out and, and look for the job? And, you know, broad categories, you said the CV is maybe 20% of it, but is it going to meetings and making relationships? Is it, you know, trying to think geographically? What can one do before it's time for the real show? Yeah, I, I think that building uh, relationships during your training, often that's done at meetings. Occasionally, you can have an opportunity to uh, uh, spend some time in another place, uh, you know, during your residency. That, that can be critical. I, I can tell you from personal experience that, you know, the fact that I landed and, and in Miami had everything to do with, uh, you know, my experiences in Miami during my training. And so if that opportunity exists either as part of your training or collaborating with someone uh, for, for research or getting to know people at meetings, I think those are uh, super important connections. But I think for a lot of people, it's, you know, a year or two before they, they end and talking to their mentors and, and saying, hey, you know, I'm looking for a job. I'm looking for a job in the Northeast. Uh, you know, who, who would you, um, which institutions would you recommend I look at? And can you help me make those connections with uh, X, Y, and Z? Well, that's great. Um, perhaps to end this with a bit of levity, you know, every year in the uh, neurosurgery match interviews, there's always someone that becomes a story. There's blue label guy that ordered blue label at every interview dinner. There's card trick guy who is doing magic tricks around the country. And we always wonder, is this real or is it apocryphal? Did someone just start the story? But I wonder if looking back at your career hiring neurosurgeons, if you can think of a memorable story, either a junior fresh out of training, a senior person you were recruiting, it could be the worst application you ever saw, or maybe just the most memorable experience you had trying to bring someone to Miami. I don't know if I can give you a funny story, but I, you know, I certainly we, we have definitely um, courted people uh, who, you know, ultimately didn't take the job um, mm. and, and uh, obviously respect those, those reasons for why they did. So I, the only thing that I would say, and I wouldn't say it's levity, but it, 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 as you, if you are a, an a excellent candidate, uh, and, and there are many out there that it's, you know, as important it, as it is to find a job um, and, and, and pick the right job for both you and your family. And your family is as important in that decision making as you are, because, uh, you, you know, happy uh, 
spouse, uh, you know, is going to be happier for, for you, uh, I would tell you. Um, but but if, if, you're, if you're not interested, I think that's important to put that on the table as well. I mean, you, you don't want to sort of bring along, you know, four or five institutions uh, courting you uh, if it's truly, truly not in your heart. So I, I, I would say that's kind of the flip side of the, of the job process. Words of wisdom, Dr. Levy, it is always a great personal pleasure, uh, for me to speak with you. Always a privilege to have you on the show. And if, uh, similar to what I said last time about uh, emotional intelligence, I said, look at the quality of life and happiness in your residence. If anyone doubts, uh, Dr. Levy's expertise in this room, Take a look at the department listing for the University of Miami Department of Neurosurgery. They run deep in every subspecialty of neurosurgery, and uh, you know it, it shows a real skill and acumen in the hiring. Dr. Levy, thank you for coming back on the show. Thank you, John. Keep up the great work. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.